Hey everyone, this is James Mackey and welcome to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. Join us as we cover high-level thought leadership and step-by-step guides on how to make people a competitive advantage for your organization. I'm incredibly proud to be the CEO of Secure Vision, the sponsor of this show and the number one contract recruiting, embedded recruiting, and RPO firm. A thank you to our partners, Greenhouse, the hiring operating system for people-first companies, and Gem, the all-in-one hiring solution recruiters love. Let's go! Hey, welcome to the show. I'm your host, James Mackey. Really excited to uh, for today's episode. We are joined by Anthony Onesto. Anthony, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, good to see you. Thanks for having me, James. Well, we have some uh, a lot of great uh, topics outlined, how to recruit for a Gen Z, um, discussing your background uh, in terms of also uh, advising from a CEO, chief revenue officer perspective, and how that's probably impacted your perspective on running people organizations, performance management, AI. We got a lot of good stuff to, to talk about today. So let's, I want to make sure everybody tuning in understands the perspective that you're bringing to the table. So would you mind, uh, you know, where you're coming from, essentially, would you mind sharing a, a brief background on yourself? Yeah, sure. Happy to do it. I'll, I'll, I'll go as quickly as possible because it's a pretty long background. Uh, so I'll just start off with the fact that I studied accounting in college and my first job out of college, I got fired. So wasn't really all that good at accounting and, and didn't really love it. And just got into the the recruiting space, started doing recruiting, started doing HR, and then started doing it in startups in these uh, companies, particularly in New York, where everyone was going into financial services. I decided to go into these tech companies and dot-com boom and bust, been through all that sort of stuff and been doing that for, I want to say, you know, more than 20 years, helping early stage companies scale, you know, from very early on uh, to, you know, thousands of employees in some cases, and helping not only to, to to help them scale, but build their processes, their strategies, and their plans around um, the three pillars in HR. I call it find, keep, and elevate, which is very similar to my book. So find is recruiting, keep is sort of the normal HR operations and engagement, and then elevate is learning and development and growth. Um, so I've been doing that for startups for 20 years, actually jumped out of doing that and went on the business side. So I went on the business side of a learning development platform that was expanding in the U.S. and I became their president of U.S. operations. So doing no HR work and taking the HR experiences and helping them with their go-to-market strategy, sales enablement, product product marketing. At the time, there was no such thing as product marketing, but that's what we were doing. And did that for a couple of years and then jumped back into HR recently with Suzy, uh, where I've been for for five years. And uh, Suzy's a market research SaaS platform. And the one thing I haven't done in my career, I've exited, I've um, I've acquired companies, I've closed companies and never IPO'd a company. So hopefully with Suzy, we'll be able to check that box off. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. So I also, I wanted to mention, I mean, you've been with some pretty well-known organizations as an advisor and hands-on, namely... I see on your uh, LinkedIn profile, Benny. Uh, I know Matt Straz, uh, not well, uh, but I, I was introduced to him a year or two back. He was able to give me some pretty good advice. Um, and then I also saw you were with Lattice uh, as an advisor. Um, so, so a lot of a lot of big names here. Yeah, I mean the advisor stuff is is gets me into the operational commercial side of of businesses. So my day job obviously is mostly in HR. Recruiting, uh, what these have done is, and I truly believe that one of the biggest gaps, particularly with HR technologies, is that there aren't many HR folks helping them 
to uh, to really build their product uh, to to help them strategize their go to market, and that's what I do with these folks. So on the side, I kind of take off my HR hat and I put on my commercial hat, and it's been a really fun experience bringing those two worlds together. Uh, and it actually manifested recently in a in a LinkedIn blog post that I put together in terms of how. HR tech companies or recruiting companies really need to think about these things. Um, so it's been fun. And I've been fortunate. I met Straz uh, when he started Namely. I basically told him everything I didn't like about it. And he's like, looked at me and said, you should be an advisor. Um, and I was like, what's that? And and there you go. And it's been a whirlwind since I followed him to, to Benny um, doing some really fun stuff with with Lattice right now. I actually just signed up with a company called Overalls. They're, they need a board advisor. So just really an opportunity to take all this HR uh, tech experience and, and manifest it and help it with uh, help with, you know, go to market strategies for, for a lot of these entrepreneurs. Uh, for sure. I, I think that let's, let's start with uh, how having that executive experience from a, uh, a CRO go to market experience has impacted your perspective on people organizations. And I think it sounds like you progress more so from the people side into that go to market side. But nonetheless, like I, I just think it's a really interesting uh, topic to dive into. I think that there's a lot of correlations between revenue organizations and people organizations. I think that it's really important for senior HR executives to be able to put on that revenue go to market. Uh, had understand North Star metrics, be able to communicate through data uh, to the CEO, to the board. And I think that, you know, sometimes I'll see the posts on LinkedIn where I'll, I'll see town acquisition executives or whatnot saying town acquisition should have a seat at the leadership table. I completely agree. I also think that a lot of town and people executives don't speak the same language as uh, executive leaders. And, and that's probably why uh, they don't have a seat at the leadership table yet. And so I think it goes both ways, right? It, it takes a company that values that perspective, and then it also takes individuals that understand that they're going to need to become more analytical and understand how their function feeds into achieving companies' North Star metrics. So I want to just talk to you a little bit about how you think your experience as uh, a business advisor, as a revenue advisor, influences how you run people organizations. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great prompt. I mean, I think Traditionally, I, I did have that HR background, but I also felt like, you know, coming from even though it was a failed accounting experience, having studied accounting and finance and being able to speak the the natural language of business um, gave me one up in terms of how I thought about things. I would, I, you know, other than surprising uh, a CFO or a CEO when I could read balance sheets and income statements and and start that talking that language. I think it was incredibly helpful because what I do now is I start with that, with those things and I work backwards, right? Where I think a lot of folks, especially in, in your spot on, I think it's talent. I think it's HR. I think often we speak our language, right? So when we talk about things, we talk about engagement. Well, what the heck does that mean? What is the translation of that when we say somebody is highly engaged? Now you can infer a bunch of things, but we're talking about that, like, hey, board, we have highly engaged people versus the highly engaged people are producing more. They're, you know, if we looked at the different traits of a highly effective salesperson, uh, you would find that, you know, they're knowledgeable in their craft. Uh, they, there are certain hard skills and soft skills they have. The question is, like, how do we, you know, almost like a, if you think about um, a sound engineer, like, how do we pivot? all these different aspects, whether they're soft skills or I call those 
soft skills are now in my vernacular power skills or technical skills. What are those things that allow them? See, I'm talking the language of HR, right? Soft skills and power skills. But what the reality is, what are the things, the habits that they do that accelerate them to hit their quota, to, to hit their revenue goals, right? And so when I was on the commercial side and when I'm talking to CEOs, like that's what they care about. They don't, listen, they, good leaders care about the employee and care about the employee on the, on the human side of it but they also care about the business side. And so we need to make sure that we're functionally looking at both of those things. What's the human aspects of these things and then correlating those things to the best. And sales is the easiest one, right? It's linear. We can see that doing these things actually impact revenue. There are some roles that uh, it's very hard to figure out the true value of that role uh, with the organization where I think sales becomes really easy. So start off there, start off in sales and understand, okay, what are the metrics Everyone's trying to hit quota. What are the things that they're doing? Uh, and look at the successful folks. What are the habits? What are the things that they're doing? What are the digital breadcrumbs for those folks? So I think it's that ability, like looking at, you know, there was a there was a great book years ago by um, an author, Josh Burnoff. He wrote Writing Without Bullshit. And I always like, I, I had said to him, I said, I want to do HR without bullshit. It's like, how do we strip out the language and make it a business language. And I think that's the critical, that's the thing that was an aha moment for me, especially when doing some of these commercial advisory services. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I just, yeah, I think there's a lot to dive into this topic. I, I've, in the previous episodes, we've dived into a lot about like the importance of being analytical and being able to speak business language. So for this episode, I would really love to get into exactly how to prove the ROI and opportunity cost and Maybe you have some guidance for folks that, let's say there's a key initiative they need to to drive home to the leadership team, to the rest of the leadership team that's important, right? Like maybe there's a, a shift that needs to occur on the talent acquisition side, for instance, and there's a requirement for more budget uh, to invest in a tech stack or recruiting headcount, for instance. So this is one example, and maybe we can riff on this for a minute. How do you kind of prepare or set up the argument, if you will, to how like increasing a budget is going to impact the company's North Star metrics. Do you have any like advice on how leaders can position that? Yeah, I think it's like anything, any any other asset, right? Like I don't I don't see a difference here. Like if you're going out and 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 you want to purchase a tool to do something, how are you positioning that tool in your organization? Right, you're starting with the end game. What is this tool going to do for us? And if it's something like, and there's different elements within that too, right? There's different elements in terms of this tool will just make sure that we're compliant. So it's risk aversion is the is the purpose of that tool. We want to be risk adverse here. It may not be adding revenue or creating profitability for us, but that that's the risk. That's the the purpose of that tool. So I would start with what are the main company goals, right? And, and at Suzy, it's very simple. We have ARR, which is a huge, um, you know, it's a huge metric in the SaaS software space. It's one of the things where you're evaluated on. But we're also concerned with profitability, given the, the major shift that's happened in the marketplace. Start off with those two things. Okay, backtrack. How would you position this tool in terms of one of those goals? Is it impacting revenue or increasing profitability or productivity? And start backtracking that way. I mean, everyone's going to have their own different framework. But to me, that's the way. I'll give you an example. I won't talk about the tool, but 
um, or, or name the tool, but there was a tool that we were looking for in HR. And so um, oftentimes, and, and I talk about this with a lot of HR tech companies, there's a lot of times you're competing with known names of other tools. And then there's one competitor you, you probably don't even recognize is out there. It's called Do Nothing Incorporated. What if I do nothing? You know, if this tool, if I use your tool or do nothing, what happens? So there's a tool out there where right now a lot of our HR people are putting a lot of time into the process that this tool solves. So in my head, I'm going, okay, if I just continue on doing nothing, what happens, right? It doesn't increase revenue. It doesn't increase costs. It just is different. They came up, this, this tool did a great job of going, okay, tell us all the things you want to solve for, all the different actions that are involved in here. And they have an ROI tool that they said, oh, you're missing out on reimbursements from all these other places. And so when they did that, I immediately got into my head to say, oh, we're, we're missing out on reimbursements, which eventually can help us reduce our costs, which impacts our, pro- our profitability. The minute they, they changed the, the conversation to, oh, this is helpful for a process and an experience and, and shifted it to, wow, you're missing out on hundreds of thousands of dollars that you can get reimbursed for. Immediately, I went to the ROI in terms of profitability, right? So that to me is the like, and that changed the game for me. I immediately put it through our vendor process. I'm like, this is an easy discussion. This is so easy. So I think when 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 you're an HR person and you're thinking about a program or a budget, you have to think of it as a product first. And how is that product going to either increase revenue or decrease your costs or increase productivity? So that way you're actually measuring and then take it back. The only challenge I have is don't BS it. Like try to make the numbers real numbers. If you're, you know, people will call, like your CFO is going to call BS on a lot of things. Your CEO is savvy. They understand these things. So make sure your numbers are solid and you're going to them and saying, hey, this is the tool. It's going to save us, you know, a couple of hundred thousand in terms of lost revenue or lost costs or whatever it is and then make the argument and the ROI, here's the cost. Like it's no different than any other asset, I think that, you know, that you're going to invest in. Yeah. I, I think that that's, you can't just focus on the process, right? Like the process that it's, it's going to, efficiency is great too, but if you could tie it to cost or growth or profitability, uh, a key North Star metric, you're going to have a much better chance. So the reality is like, if you can't do that, then maybe reevaluating like, well, do you really actually need this? Like, I love this phrase, right? Paraphrasing, but it's a specific quote from a, a, a theoretical physicist. I'm blanking on his name, but to paraphrase, he basically said, to prove yourself right, try to prove yourself wrong. Right. And I think that like as executives too, it's like we need to embody that mentality where it's like, okay, if we want something, let's not back into some kind of dogmatic belief system. Let's really evaluate this from a data perspective and let's try to prove ourselves wrong. And try to poke holes and you know if it makes sense for us to actually make this investment. And so if it doesn't stand up to the test to move it to North Star metric, then why, you know, like I think we just have to test that, right? It, it, there should be a clear causal relationship between in making an investment and generating the results of the the company, the North Star metrics of the company, sure. right? Yeah. I mean, I'll do a less sophisticated version of that. And so years ago, I, I I was watching. If you remember, uh, and we're believe me, we'll we'll get to this. So um, don't be shocked. But Eight Mile with Eminem, right? So I'm referencing Eminem. 
I wrote a blog article about this years ago when I saw the movie, right? And in one of the scenes where he's going up against the rap, uh, the rap battle, he knows exactly what the other individual is going to say about him, right? So in order for him to win, what does he do? He says those things about himself and he takes away the argument. Now, I've, 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 I've made this correlation to how leaders need to talk to employees. Like, you know, you know what they're going to be thinking when change comes in. So say it, you know, be transparent, right? Use, and I call it the M&M method. Same thing is here. In, in your point of view, it's, all right, what is your CEO going to say? What is your CFO going to say? And, you know, if they are the uh, litmus test of why we shouldn't be investing or, you know, your CFO is cost control, right? That's their mandate. You definitely want to say, okay, what are the things that he or she or, uh, or they are going to bring out on this? And make sure you're prepared for that, right? Make sure that you're you're able to do it in a way, one, that's authentic. That's That has to be the case. And like you said, if you can't, and there's not always a clear line. I want to be very clear. When we signed up our HR and our payroll system, yeah, the only productivity there, like if we don't have that, no one gets paid. And, and then we're super profitable, but then we have no business, right? Like some things will not have that clear line. Yeah. But some things will. Another example, we're looking at this tool. And what they do is they actually look at what I call digital breadcrumbs of your employees. And this is more sales. And what they try to do is say, okay, who's the best salesperson? And they backtrack statistically, what are the things that person? So they they try to pull data from all these different you know systems because everyone's leaving a digital breadcrumb in your gong or in your, your sales force or in your email. And what they what they try to point out is what are the key factors that that individual does that makes them successful? Is it from time from first email to second email, from demo to this to that? It's getting and so for me that's easy because I can say, oh, what if we can unlock what you know? When I ask somebody what makes a great salesperson, I'm getting different answers from different people, and they're guessing. They don't know for certain. This could actually let us know for certain what are the correlation, what are the behaviors that the salespeople do. ROI on that is easy, right? I, I know for a fact if I could unlock what makes a good salesperson, the revenue is there. So, but I start with the revenue first. Like I start with the quotas. What if we can get everyone to 100% of their quota or, or the good people to 150%? What would that do for us, right? So it's a yeah. very different discussion. But I, I like your point. Mine's less sophisticated with the M&M um, uh, example, but that's the example. It's like call out what you think they're going to object to. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's like two-pronged, right? Like the first step is to be an effective business person, you have to love proving yourself wrong. You have to get in that mindset of making sure you're making decisions based off logic and sound reason. Step two is understanding what's the worldview or perspective of my peers and leadership. How are they going to approach this problem? And as you said, like being prepared to handle that part of the conversation. And I think it's like understanding both of those things is what creates a, an effective one of the you know, one core part of what creates an effective executive. Yeah. And also coming back. Right. And 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 being humble, like you went in. Amazon has a great thing. They call it the two door. Right. You go through the door and you can come back through it. There's certain decisions that are much more difficult when we pick our payroll system. It's very difficult to pull that back. In this case, it's also being humble enough to go, it didn't work. What I thought was going to be the return, it didn't work. Let's pull it back. Let's do something else and mm -hmm. be humble with that. It's it, that the humble pie is a very difficult thing to eat. Um, 
in the in the HR space, but I think it's one of those areas that we we really need to do. Like, hey, it, it, actually, I was wrong. It didn't work. Let's pull it back. Let's try something else. Yeah, for sure. We make decisions based off the data we have, and there's power in change in our mind. When you have more data, you can make a new decision. I think it's like we're almost like culturally raised to to think that it's like bad to change our minds, right? Like we, and of course, like some cases, like there's genuine frustration in society. We look at like politicians, the idea of flip-flopping these types of things. And that's not to say that's, that's different. It's not to say in life that you should, you know, if we have the same perspective we had 10, 15, 20 years ago, are we really growing? And uh, I think often it's, it's like, we need to remind ourselves that there is power in changing our mind and making informed decisions based off the data. And hopefully over time, we're going to have more data and we can make better decisions. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes that can be hard, right? If you work with a, other leaders that may be less forgiving or you feel like, you know, but still like it's going to come out. It's better to, to, to own it and be in the driver's seat of that conversation because it yeah. shows that you're looking at the company's best interest, that you know what you're talking about, that you're staying on top of analyzing the data. And I feel like as long as you're like, Hey, this is why this is the assumption that we made, or this is the decision we made because of the, the data, what we've learned is this. So we're going to scale back. And it's like, as you put it, right. Like the, how you presented it, I think as long as you do that in the right way, most leadership teams are going to be understanding as long as there aren't just like too many big costly mistakes back to back. Right. <laughs> right. Right. No, you don't yeah. want to stay in the same mistake over and over again. Yeah. That that's not going to work. But, and and that's why I like to democratize the data to our team. So they know exactly what's going on because they're going to know everyone knows if something is not working, they know. So why pretend again, get ahead of it. It didn't work. Um, Let's let's move on to something different. I think there, you know, depending on where you are, if you're in more entrepreneurial situations, your CEO, your founder is going to appreciate that ability to sort of go, oh, let's test this out. It didn't work. Let's let's go backwards. I think in larger and like you said, it's more prominent costs. <laughs> um, it becomes a little bit harder. For sure. Yeah, I would love to to transition into uh, performance management. I I would love to get your thoughts. It's not a topic that we've We've discussed it a couple of times. We have almost 100 episodes. We've discussed it a couple of times. I would love to just dive deeper into the topic and get your, like, let's say, just high-level kind of philosophy on the topic. I want to understand how you approach it. And then maybe let's talk a little bit about implementation and give some people people ta- tactical steps in terms of what they can do. Yeah. Yeah. This is, a, this, this is interesting um, performance because performance has been through, you know, a lot of change recently. There's been a lot of opinions on on performance. Um, I'm reading a book right now about performance. So even my opinion, I would say, is still evolving around this. Um, years ago, we used to we did performance reviews once a year. No one liked doing them. Everyone hated the process. Uh, it, people would spend uh, a crazy amount of time doing doing the process, and so. Our CEO at the time, this was a, a larger company, it was one of the startups I worked with, but came to me and said, hey, we we want to re, revamp this. And I, I said to him, I said, how much do you think it costs us to do performance reviews? It's once a year, but it takes people a week to do all. Everyone's involved. If we were billing per hour, what would you what would you guess? And we were like, you know, a million or something. I said, all right, what if we don't do it? What if we take, you know, what if I came to you and said, we want to do the same process and it's going to cost a million and a half dollars? Would you approve? Like, why are we doing all these things that are sort of things we've always done, but never questioned? And so 
he said, I love the idea. Let's just get rid of them. Right. And the question he was like, all right, how do, what do we replace them with? And that's where I was like, oh, it's so much easier to, to go up against a, an existing contract. It's so much harder to come up with a new idea. I was like, no, this is, but it was good. Good point. And I said, I don't know if I had the answer. We put a team together. Uh, I was the only HR person involved. There were experienced folks, there were developers, there were innovation folks. And we come up with we came up with this concept of doing more regular conversations, right? This idea of performance. If it was a sailboat, you'd be off course a year later, you'd be way off course. We have to adjust almost on a real-time basis. How do we do those things? So we built a construct. It was um, it was the Swan project, and 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 we were planning on having an app and all this sort of stuff, but it never came to fruition. But the concept was we need to be more real-time on these things. We need yeah. to be more events triggered. So I, I think, and that's not uncommon. Everyone's talking about more frequent performance reviews. I think check-ins, uh, all these sort of things. But I will tell you recently with, with all the economic headwinds, we, we went to, when I first started with Susie five years ago, we went to what we call growth conversations. So on a quarterly basis, it was growth. Like, Hey, what do you, you know, how are things going? Where do you want to go in your career? What's the next step? What are the things we need to help you on? And what we found is people, you know, we, we were a bit libertarian on how they were operated. Like, hey, do what works for your department. It was all over the place. Some folks never got their growth conversation. No one knew where they were. Like, it was a little bit too open in terms of its guidance. And so recently, we kind of brought it into, okay, we definitely want to do some sort of performance um, score, if you will, call it ranking, whatever it is. I was never a big fan of it, but I felt like people just needed that. They needed to understand where their performance was, but still keeping that concept of this is a past looking indicator, but we're all about performance going forward. So if you're struggling on these things, we're going to give you the tools. We're going to have regular conversations with you. So I think it's hard to pinpoint like, hey, do this. I think it's much, much larger discussion on the the way people lead, the weekly conversations that they have. Like to me, I would I would revamp the entire thing, and I would say you have to do things weekly. You have to be having conversations with folks, really understand where their performance is. How is that going? Where is it going? But mine is a nirvana that doesn't exist yet. So I'll take quarterly for now, and we've combined some of the old world and the new world thinking around these things. Well, yeah, I mean, if you look at, at sports, um, which I'm not a big sports guy, so don't ask me specifics, uh, but um, I will say it's like, you know, coaching is an ongoing thing. Performance is an ongoing thing. There's not a week that passes where it's not discussed. Positive, great coaches are giving positive feedback as soon as it happens. They're correcting, correcting course quickly. You would never see in a basketball team or a football team a coach waiting a, a year to say, hey, you fucked that up. Um, right. You know, and I, I think it's 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 okay to have that type of maybe you wouldn't say it like that, but you know what I mean. I think it's okay to have that candor if if you just build the culture to expect it, where it's it's going to be transparent when it's good, it's going to be transparent when it's bad. Just because it's bad doesn't mean we're giving up on you, or we're not supportive of you. On the contrary, let's let's make it right, but let's do it quickly uh, or as fast as we can. I think too, it's tr- identifying trends is important. You know. It's like looking at anything, you know, we're talking about the language of business when you're looking at a P&L or cash flow statement or whatever it might be without understanding the trend line, it's basically useless. 
right? right. I mean, you can yep. look at, oh, year so over our, year. Yep. Right. Our cash balance is a million. Okay. Well, that sounds, we got, you know, X amount of months of runway. That's great. Well, if last year it was 12 million and this year it's a million and you haven't invested, right? you know, it, you could have yourself a problem. Right. right. So it's, yep. it's, uh, I, I think people, I don't know if we necessarily look at trends enough when it comes to, to performance and we, we need more process around that. And I think, um, you know, things like pips of performance and go well should be based on trend lines and you have to decide, you know, at what point does this get to the point of a, of a, a true performance uh, improvement plan and what do we do to avoid that and how can yeah. we identify performance issues as quickly as possible? And it, to yeah. me, it all comes down to understanding data and trends. It does. And and then I also think it's important, like, so you brought up PIP, so I'm going to, I'm going to jump on that. Um, so it's just fascinating to me that we created this thing called a PIP, right? Performance Improvement Plan. But isn't every conversation a performance improvement? Like, you know, yeah. why do we decide, okay, towards the end of your life, we're, <laughs> we're going to do, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a silly document created yeah. by a legal team that said, we well, need to cover our ass. And that's what a PIP is. And and that's when, when people come into Susie and they're like, do we do PIPs? I'm like, absolutely not. Because every conversation you're having needs to be documented, needs to be about growth. It needs to be about changing behavior. That is a, pro, 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 like, there's not some magical document that happens that you give somebody a 30 day window to get better. Like you've been terrible for the last year, but 30 days you have, yeah. like, it's just garbage. It yeah, is you know absolutely what garbage. I honestly hadn't thought about that before, but I completely agree. Cause I think most of the time it is BS, right? It's like just a, a way to cover, cover your, uh, cover it's a legal document. right. It's not, yeah. it's not actually like at that point, the company's essentially been up on the person and I'm sure there's leaders out there that disagree. And, but that's more of like a individual leadership thing. It's not like a company wide, uh, process. I, I think you're right. It's like, it should be, it's a trend thing and there should be based on the trend, certain actions that are taken along the way. And there does right. need to be some kind of threshold where if it's crossed, there's some kind of warning, if if you will. But I think you're right. Like I think the term PIP, the other thing is with PIP is like, it turns people off. There's a certain, there's such a strong connotation with that. I think we should just, we should just remove it. And, and just, yeah. as you said, like, I think, Performance is consistently monitored. There's some bottom threshold that people should know of proactively. Right. If it reaches a certain point, we got to start yeah. thinking about maybe this isn't the right fit, but maybe just avoid PIPs yeah. altogether, as you said. That I would sense. love to look at the data. Like, you know, give me the world's PIPs and tell me what percentage actually of the person actually improved in state. I will almost, with a certain level of, of confidence, say 99% of them <laughs> were terminated, right? So they're, it's a useless document. Yeah. Um, and it's performance improvement. I agree, but that's constant. Like you should be performance improving in every conversation. And there should be a period where you're like, and this is not working out. And by the way, that should never be a surprise. And that's the biggest struggle I have, even with yeah. leadership today, is thinking they've delivered a message that is radically candid in the words of Kim Scott. And really wasn't. And then when you look in retrospect, you're like, this wasn't even close. You're telling me they were terrible. And you gave them a, you know, a three, or you said they were doing great. I'm like, that wasn't, you did them no service, by the way. By yeah. Doing that. I, I know so many people that were like, oh, two months ago, I received feedback that I was doing well. And hey, this is just like a good life principle. You can't avoid hard conversations. You're just going to, it's going to create more problems in the future. And and that's, yeah. it's going to leave people with bad taste in their mouth. I mean, I think regardless, if, it, if it's not the right fit and you have to part ways, there's going to be some folks that are resentful regardless 
But Always. typically, yeah. I think if you if you do it the right way, you maintain respect. Uh, people are more likely. Some people are going to be more reasonable, and I, I think it's it's just uh, you don't avoid the hard conversations. You have to make sure they're baked into process that those things are happening. And people want to they want to hear it. They want to know where they stand. Yeah. And two, because it's like, even if your people are performing really well, if they're not receiving the right kind of feedback, it might be creating anxiety for them too, if they don't, they feel like they don't know where they stand, right? And that's why this is a complex topic, right? Like everyone is like, do you do performance reviews? Do you do growth count? Like it's not, it's not linear. It's so complex. And I will say the last thing on PIP, because I absolutely love them. I think a PIP is a band-aid for shitty leadership. I think it is. I that that's it's like, hey, you haven't done your job by being a leader and being radically candid and providing feedback. So now we're going to give this document to the employee. And just like I said, it's a legal proceeding from that point. So yeah. it's unfortunate. So I think with, you know, if you and then the other thing, I think the 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 other big challenge is if you go to a leader, right, and and say define performance. What does high performance look like for your group? I think they'd have a hard time. They, they'd be able to go, oh, you know, James. Like they'd be able to point to a person. But then when you double click on that, you're like, what are the things that James does really well that makes him a high performer? And, and like, how do you map that out? I think that is another piece of performance that we really need to figure out. And if you ask every HR person, what does high performance look like? They might not even know what it looks like in their organization, right? Um, and it's so funny when we did a whole bunch of conversations around performance in our in our last growth conversations. I pulled out all the things in the conversation that I noticed impl- uh, leaders were saying that made people high performers, and they're all soft skills. It's collaboration, right? It's all these things, initiative. Like none of it was 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 uh, technical skills. Um, and it's just really interesting to me because I just assume the technical skills are probably at a, a good mastery level and that everything else at that point in terms of high performance has to do with more softer or what I call power skills. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I yeah, I, I definitely think like for, for my company, Secure Vision, we do, we know the profile, we know the experience background, the skill set we want. But I mean, one of the things that I've told my team and and this varies from company to company. So like sometimes people give me feedback. Well, it seems, you know, it should be expert, but I usually say around, you know, hire people who've done around 75% of the job. The 25% they haven't done is why they're going to accept your offer. When you hire the right people, the right people that have that mindset of value creation and learning, they're intellectually curious. Honestly, I value curiosity more than just raw IQ. Uh, and I yeah. think that if you get people that are adaptable, ambitious, and curious, lifelong learners, humble enough to be a student, but confident enough to execute, I think that that combination of person is exactly who wins. Like, I I look for that too in the final round interview for my company. It it's yeah, it's power skills, as you put it. I as long as somebody has a, a decent foundation, we can teach them the rest. I just want right. that person that is like a driver that's like a value creator, which is kind of vague, but all of the 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 skills I just mentioned or, or traits that I just mentioned are ultimately going to determine success. And, and one of the ways that I do that, by the way, like my favorite question to ask somebody, and I do this for individual contributors and some people I don't feel like get it. I'll try to articulate it in a way that, that makes sense. But I'll ask somebody, you know, if you were promoted to CEO of your current employer tomorrow, what would be your top three initiatives and why? 
It could be something yep. you would double down on, something that you would change, something you would discontinue. And I, I, I love that question because yeah. to me, it shows how self-aware they are, how aware of their environment, if they have a collaborative or lone wolf uh, working style, if they truly understand what drives North Store performance in the company and how that cascades down to an individual uh, contributor level. Yeah. Um, I, I learned I, their engagement, their excitement answering the question. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, how much time they spend collecting information versus executing, how they strike that balance. And again, I ask this for like individual, like recruiter roles, right? right? But I yeah. tell you, man, like it's been a great question that gives me, and then I ask follow-up questions or whatnot. It's given sure. me a great understanding of somebody's ability to be adaptable, critical thinking, and awareness of their environment. And I mean, it, do they think outside of their JD? All of those right. things, I can dive so deep uh, with follow-up questions based on that. But you're right. Like, I think the main thing I'm looking for is like, just basically, how do they think? Uh, how do they think about their role within the organization? And how do they think about getting results? Like, I mean, that to me, yeah. that's the most important. I read a, a blog article. I wish I can. I, I I mentioned this blog article a lot, and I forget to give her credit. But an author wrote. It's called Learners versus Guides. And what she talks about is basically when you're when you're at least when you're a startup founder or entrepreneur and you're building your teams out. What are you looking for? And she said there are two there's two categories. One is a learner. One is a guide. And she said the learner is what you're talking about. Someone that you know maybe doesn't know the role 100. percent but can learn into it, right? There are certain roles that you want to have that. Then the other role is a guide. The guide is someone that has done the role, but not only done it, but has done it two or three steps ahead of you of where your company is. And she said, you need a mix of both of those. And I said, mm-hmm. absolutely right. And it depends. Like I, I will give Matt Britton credit for Susie. He hired me. I was overhired five years ago, a small company, but he knew that I had built companies to a thousand plus employees and he always knew that Susie would get there someday. So he, we were building the roadmap. What are the things that you've seen that you know are coming down the road as we get to 50? And it's culture, it's HR operations, it's all sorts of things. So I think it depends on the role and the position, but either one of those things. And I thought that was a really brilliant way to describe what I've seen in my career uh, in, a, in, a, in a very different way. Yeah, that's, that's a, a really good point. And I think that's true. I think as a generalization, I think I use the 75-25, but there are certainly areas or roles that as I'm thinking about growing my company where you're right, I want the guide. I want somebody yeah. who knows what they're doing and just loves it, right? Like, of course, they want to continue to grow, but the way that they see growth is nuance of the specific environment and the challenges that are within that. However, they they have a lot of experience in the role. Like they're adaptable enough yeah. to they're not going to copy and paste everything, right? But right, that's key because it's a different. Yeah. But they'll know. Okay, the roadmap says at this point we're going to be here, but it's it's Susie, and so it's going to be a little bit different, and put their mark on it. Or even, you know, frankly, I made a mistake when I was did this the first or second time. I don't want to make it the third time, and let's avoid that. So I think it's yeah. it's definitely helpful. But some roles, it's okay. It's some roles you want people that are learners. Yeah, but some you want guides. Well, it's it's tough too, right? Because like everybody has to take that top, that first executive job, right? Yes. And it's and I guess so. Here's an interesting question. I don't know if we if there's a clear answer to it. How does an organization know if it's all right to promote somebody into an executive role that they haven't done before versus getting the guide, right? Because every we've all had that first executives have all had that first role. 
are we basically saying that more mature organizations are going to know not to be the one to promote somebody <laughs> for the first time? Or is there a way to, to know if that's okay in certain situations? I don't know, yeah. to be clear. So yeah. <laughs> this is a, yeah, I don't know. It's a, good, it's a great question. I mean, I don't have an answer. The way I would think about it, though, is I would look at it in terms of the function itself. So do I... If I am a mid-sized company and I know in two or three years I'm going to go IPO, do I take a chance with a learner as my CFO? Probably not. I probably no, want no. someone that has been through the process. So that way, any any march towards that is not um, is not uh, is not uh, you know thrown away. Uh, there's no obstacles. Um, if I am you know head of, I'm looking for a you know a head of customer success? Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe I want creativity. Maybe I want somebody that's a good leader there. Maybe there's an opportunity to learn in that space. So really, to me, it depends. Um, I would argue we don't do enough of this in the HR space within you know uh, young companies. I'm, I, you're starting to see a little movement of this, but a lot of times it's like, oh, you're the receptionist or the office manager. You're now the new head of HR. And I think it's a big mistake, frankly. Um, yeah. So I think it's also prioritization of, of the role and the impact of the role. I don't think you would, you know, sales might be, you might be in between, right? Like you might want somebody with new, fresh thinking in a space, or you might want someone that has built, you know, a company that has generated, you know, 250 million in ARR, you know, like it depends on, on the, on the role specific and I think stage of your company. So I hate the answer, but it depends. <laughs> it's so situational. Yeah. And I think that there's also a tendency, particularly when you see on like LinkedIn and content development, where there's oversimplifications because you're trying to create something in a consumable format. As I'm saying this out loud, like for my 75, 25%, I think that's an example of it, right? Like there's there's context that isn't always discussed behind why decisions are made. And the reality is that business, a lot of these situations are pretty complex. They're highly situational. So yeah. it's hard to put out like a, a rule, so to speak. I mean, there's yeah. Generalization, we can say typically this is the way it's going to go, but we can never really be sure until we're in the environment. And then even when we're in it, it's no way to know for sure necessarily, right? Yeah. And I know it's misquoted. I, I, I forget the original, but everyone gives Mike Tyson the quote, right? Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. Yeah. I think that's so true. We love, and and I, I was listening to a podcast recently, I forget who it was, but the planning part is it was, I think it was Adam Grant talking to the CEO of uh, Chobani and um, just real interesting person, by the way, just fascinating folks should, should, should listen to it. But they talked about maybe the plan is not good, but the planning part is the value. The plan, once you get to the plan, it may change, like you said. Um, but I think we all love frameworks. We love simplicity. So that's why you see a lot of the content out there, but you're right. It's so nuanced every situation, but I don't think we have the capacity to understand that, right? Like if you think about every millionth of a situation is like our brains will explode. So I think it's easier to go, Oh yeah, there's a framework for that. So. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely need frameworks for sure. Yeah. Um, well, Hey, look, we got, I got a few minutes left here. I, we didn't even touch Gen Z recruitment yet. Um, you wrote a whole book about it. So I feel like we should we should we should talk about it considering it's something you know quite well. You can read the book. Yeah, uh, yeah, just go to the book. Go yeah, buy the I, book. I think everybody like a lot of the advice out there is just kind of very surface level. It's like you know Gen Z grew up with technology, so you know you got to be sure on did. social media. You got to you know, and so I, I want to cover that, but I want to go deeper with you 
and try to give people some insights here that aren't in some of the blog posts posts that we've all seen, right? So yeah. we'd love to kind of get your your overview, high level, and then kind of diving into some. I want to go through some stuff that can guide strategy for CPOs yeah. and CEOs tuning in. Yeah, I mean it's pretty meaty. Maybe part two uh, could go super super dive uh, dive into this, but I think you know if I, I'll take the one that you just talked about, right? It's a digitally savvy uh, group that's born digital. I would say not only born digital, born mobile. So mobile phone, iPhone comes out in 2007. The other aspect, so it's not only that, they have unprecedented access to information and things almost immediately where, you know, I'm an Xer, we had to dial up and it took forever to get to anything. And we never could get an item within 24 hours. We'd have to wait. Um, This generation does not. How does that manifest? Um, Think about your recruiting process right now. Go to your, you know, there's, and I'm building an audit around this, like a matrix that, like I said, everyone loves framework. So trying to figure out, okay, in your recruiting process, are you Gen Z ready or your future proof, as I call it? So you go to your recruiting process. I won't say mine is is any better than anyone else's, by the way. We're working on it. But you go to it and you click on a job and you have to fill out your name, your email, your phone number, and then you click on another button and it asks you to upload your resume. Uh, And then you click another button and you add your LinkedIn. They're gone. They are gone. This is a generation... Like you said, born digitally. And by the way, if you can't do that all mobily, it's going to be very difficult. Uh, but they'll get on desktop, of course. If that's to me, that's the simplest way. Like audit, you know, have a Gen Z person walk through your recruiting process and let me know what they think of it. They're going to provide, by the way, they don't, they're un they're they're relentless in terms of their feedback. So you're going to get really good feedback. They're not going to sugarcoat anything. But the problem is, is even before that. So when I what I talk about in my book is that you know they're very big this generation in terms of cultural issues, especially diversity, equity, inclusion. This generation, like I said, has access to information. So on your Instagram, you put you know you have a Susie thing with with uh, pride uh, behind it, or you talk about your focus on on underrepresented groups. This generation will go to LinkedIn and look at your executive team. They'll look at your board of directors. Who makes up your board of directors? Okay, they're all white male. Okay, let's go to the next level. Who are the executive team? All right, they have one woman, but all white employees. Like they're like they're going to call BS on that, right? And to me, that's the important part. So when we talk about what's needed to attract this generation from a recruiting perspective. It's not putting something out on Instagram. It's not being out on TikTok. It's much, much deeper than that. Like you have to, at the core of your business, change the way you're thinking about your diversity, equity, inclusion. You have to start at your board level. You have to start at your executive team level. And if you're not there, you need to get there. You need to progress in these places and then think about the experience. Go super tactical and go, okay, what is it? to recruit, we added very recently, we added audio to our job description. So it's like a podcast. So we're trying to test that to see if that could attract folks. It's a very different experience uh, than what you normally get, which is just a just a text uh, job description. So you can actually hear our CEO talking about our culture. You can hear me, someone from the role themselves talking about it in a podcast. We cut it up. So it's, you know, again, think about this generation very quick in terms of if you think of the TikTok experience, these are mechanics. Like they want to view something for a couple of seconds and then they move on to the next thing. So 
it's not always like, oh, be on TikTok. It's understanding the mechanics of why TikTok is the tool of Gen Z, right? And it is that all the data supports this, although Instagram reels are, are catching up. What are the mechanics behind the algorithm? What are the mechanics behind the user experience on TikTok that attract this generation to that, that platform and see if you can recreate that? You know, again, yeah. if your recruiting process takes 20 minutes, it's not going to work. Like it's not going to, yeah, they're not going to be engaged. So one, one thing that I would love to talk to you about or ask you real fast is um, human interaction, top of funnel recruiting, right? Like trying to decide, I mean, there's different ways to think about that. Like there's content creation, employer branding, resources, video resources, potentially audio and job descriptions, as you mentioned, which I hadn't heard before. So I'm curious to hear how that goes. Um, you know, there's there's all these different things, but from the perspective of talking with a recruiter for a screening call, I often wonder if that's something that's going to be disrupted. Like, is that the type of human interaction that they're looking for? Like they care about human issues like DE and I, but do they care about doing screening calls, which you could argue often could be like, does it really even need to be a call? Um, you know, could something like generative AI replace top of funnel, not the whole human process, but like, would they almost prefer going to a careers page and having an interactive conversation with you know, a generative AI program that maybe has recorded a hundred plus screening calls and knows how to answer specific questions that candidates may have. Um, I'm just kind of wondering, like, how do you think Gen Z is going to feel about AI incorporation into the interview process and what elements need to, to continue with the human touch versus what they may just not even like, they would rather almost just like use tech. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there are going to be different layers of it. There could be on the front end uh, a chatbot experience. And actually, there's been a lot of research done, not only with Gen Z, but in general, where people are more comfortable having initial discussions with a chatbot. I will also say that there are a lot of research that shows like people want that human interaction or there are folks out there. So really, it's hard to to say any one or the other. But I think for Gen Z, absolutely, I think there is an opportunity because part of the challenge right now with the recruiting process is they apply and then it goes into some sort of black hole, right? They don't hear. Maybe they get an automated message back. Or this is a generation, again, remember the mechanics of this. Can go onto Amazon and get something within two hours. They can get something within three two a day. Imagine, like, and I always use this and I and I came to the reality of understanding the technology behind this, but they can order a Domino's pizza and know what stage that pizza is at on the <laughs> app. That's, yeah. But in your recruiting process, they have no freaking idea where their application is, who are they talking to next. I did find out, by the way, that it's not real. The Domino's thing is a time thing. It doesn't really track the actual You're location. Me. I'm so yeah, I was, right I was so disappointed in learning that. So it's time-based. So like every five minutes, it then goes into the oven. The next five minutes, it's being delivered. I was so I was so angry when I heard that because I was like, why? Because I always use that in the recruiting aspect. I said, if we can track our pizza, why can't we track our application? So yes, I do think if the experience is a chatbot experience, which gives it more transparency, hey, you're because it's hard. Like if you if you want to do what generative AI can do, you'd have to hire an army of recruiters that are doing these things, right? Like you can't have, so I think there's definitely opportunity on the top of the funnel to have that, that conversation, set the expectation, understand where you are, move you through the process, almost be 
you know, a, an assistant, a co-pilot like Microsoft has in terms of your recruiting. And, and hopefully a lot of the recruiting systems are thinking about that. I know they're I think thinking so. of it more in like qualifying way, but I think it, you know, they could absolutely use it to change the experience. I think you can do both at the same time. Yeah. And give people answers immediately. Like, let me just go on to say, oh, I have these specific questions that I can't find in the content. Boom, 20 seconds. You have exactly your, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I, I think that, that that's ultimately, and, and maybe you give people the choice. Maybe it's like you can go this path and have the first interaction with AI, or you can just wait for a call. Maybe, maybe that's the answer. Yeah. And also, I mean, if you do, it's, it's already in the marketing world where you have personas, maybe you can identify the persona. So what are they interested in? And then you create a personalized experience from that, but you'd have to gather some information. We're doing that at Suzy where we put together a drivers, we call them segmentation drivers analysis, where we looked at what are the different personas of employees. And so, and I asked the, the market researcher who was running it, I'm like, can you tell me whether someone would be interested in like getting an email or a Slack message, right? Depending on their persona. So there, hmm. there's definitely some, some uh, sophistication you could put into this to personalize it without even giving them the choice. You just know, oh, based on how you answered this, you're X persona. So we're going to put you through the digital process versus the, the full human, maybe. Maybe, yeah. I mean, it's very interesting yeah. stuff. I'm, I mean, that's one of the areas I'm most excited about seeing progress over the next few years. Um, well, Anthony, look, this has been nothing short of a masterclass. I've, I've really enjoyed talking with you. A lot of good insights Thanks, here. It's, it's going to guide talent strategy. I, you know, I know I'm going to get messages in my LinkedIn inbox saying, "Hey, I shared this episode. Thank you so much for incorporating this." That stuff happens all the time. So, Anthony, I, I appreciate you contributing to the show and the and the tech and talent community. Yeah, that was really fun. Thanks for having me, James. Yeah, it was. I agree. It was a great time. And uh, for everybody else tuning in, thank you for joining us. Uh, we appreciate your support, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode and gained a lot of valuable insights to help guide your talent strategy. I also want to say thank you to my team at Secure Vision for making the show possible. Secure Vision is the number one embedded recruitment provider, and we are a three-time category leader on G2. Secure Vision partners with over 150 companies to provide on-demand recruiters who specialize in either tech, revenue, or GNA. For more information, you can visit securevision.io. For more content, you can follow me on LinkedIn at James Mackey or on Twitter at James Mackey DMV. We've dropped links in the description. If you want to be on our show or have any topics you'd like for us to cover, reach out at breakthroughhiring.io. We really appreciate your support with reviews on Apple Podcasts. And lastly, make sure to tune in every Tuesday and Thursday for a new episode. See you next time.